guys can have a seat. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You guys ready to go? Yes? I hope. We got our, got our hands full this morning, all right? So I'm going to hold you to that. We're going to continue on in Romans 5, so go ahead and turn there with me if you would. And uh, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 14 this morning. So Romans 5, 12 12 to 14. There Paul writes in verse 12, he says, Therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people, because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression, he is a type of the coming one. Um, C.S. Lewis once said, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I'm sure most of you have heard that, that quote before. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty popular, famous uh, quote from him. The idea is that uh, the, the sun, it's what, it's what shines light on everything else and, and makes sense of what we otherwise would not be able to see as clearly. Uh, without the sun, we might be able to, uh, from a little ways off, kind of see shadows of that tree over there, or maybe see the outline of kids playing on the playground. But without the light that the sun provides, we wouldn't be able to see uh, see clearly exactly what it is or what it's doing. It'd be somewhat unclear to us in that way. And the person and work of Jesus Christ works very much the same way in our theology. We read the whole Bible with this understanding that that everything ultimately points uh, to the person and work of Christ. So when we try to understand what it means for us to, uh, we'll say something like, be made in the image of God, we start answering that question by looking at Jesus, who the Bible says is the image of the invisible God. When we try to understand how uh, maybe multiple aspects of God's character that would seemingly uh, contradict one another can all still be true, we start answering that question by looking at Jesus on the cross. When we can't understand why a, a good and loving God would allow bad things to happen to us, We look to Jesus who suffered in our place. When we can't understand why God would choose to have us walk through this painful stage of life and we begin to uh, object to his goodness to us with our feelings of maybe unfairness towards us, we look to Jesus who submits to the Father's plan and will perfectly. Jesus, he's, he's, he's the light that shines on all of these challenging and difficult questions that are so foundational to not only our our thinking, but really to every way that we move in this world and in this life here and now. All of these things that, that apart from Christ, they're, they're hard to see clearly. We can't really make the whole thing out. We might get the edges of it in kind of a rough guess, but in Jesus, we see clarity 
and precision on what the Bible says about all of these things. And friends, I start this way because this is going to be very important to understand this morning. Uh, as we continue to work through Romans 5, we're coming upon a text that, that's it's going to evoke some of those very same feelings upon us as we, as we read and consider what it's really saying. These, these big ideas about the way that we're born into sin, the way that Adam's sin has affected all of humanity and how we're, we're all implicated in his rebellion against God, we have to do it with this simple idea in mind that what we are after is trying to understand all of these things as consistently as possible with the person and work of Christ. That's going to be the, the kind of the guardrails, if you will, the bumpers, uh, the, the person and work of Christ. Because hear me now, the way that Christ becomes the answer for the problem of sin in the world is the same way that Adam is the cause of it. Let me just say that again. The, the way that Christ becomes the answer for the problem of sin in the world is the same way that Adam is the cause of it. And Paul intends that we consider them in this order. He's already, he's already gone into a lot of detail, right, about Christ's work on our behalf, uh, his, his atonement, his propitiation, his righteousness, all these things that he's done for us. And, and it's only now does he begin to explain how we're all considered dead in Adam. Um, there, there's two specific questions that I think kind of... Uh, reign supreme over this text, and, and so I want to go ahead and just raise those now because they're what we're really going to spend um, all of our time trying to answer are these, these two questions. Um, the first is, how does the death from Adam's sin spread to all men, and how can Paul say all sinned in Adam? These are the questions we want to consider this morning. Um, but, but I think before we just kind of dive uh, deep into those, uh, answering those two questions, we first have to, to define and talk about what this death is that Paul talks about. Because the text says, it, it reads this way, it says, death spread through sin, and in the same way, death spread to all people. Before we talk about how exactly that happens and, and the way that works, we have to talk about uh, what this death really is. What, what is this death that Paul's referring to? And, and this is going to be our first point this morning, that the death Paul's talking about, it's not merely the physical death that happens at a moment in time. It's also spiritual, and it's eternal. The death that Paul talks about, it's spiritual, and it's eternal. These questions, they can't, they can't really be answered without going back to uh, Genesis to see how Moses kind of communicates the story of the fall there and what his, what his uh, theology is of the events, his interpretation that take place there. Because that's ultimately what Paul's picking up on here in Romans 5, right? Um, so if you would, let's go back to Genesis 2. Turn there if you're, if you're following. Um, and look with me, starting in verses 16 to 17. 16 and 17. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Um, there we see the, the Lord... God, he, he, uh, he commands Adam, and he says this. He says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat it, you will certainly 
die. Uh, this text is what we would call um, the, the Adamic covenant or the covenant with Adam. And it seems like a very uh, straightforward command, right? Don't eat from this tree with a very straightforward stipulation or consequence if that command is broken, you will certainly die. But it's not quite as simple as it sounds because just a, just a page over, we, we see and we read that Adam does, he violates that covenant by eating from the forbidden tree. But here's the thing, he doesn't die. <laughs> God said, if you, if you eat of this tree on that very day, you will surely die. We read the story and we see Adam, he does that very thing he, and, and he lives hundreds and hundreds of more years. <laughs> he didn't die till he was, I think, 930 years old, I think it is. God bless him. And to add even more to this, remember what it is that the serpent says when he's trying to get Adam and Eve to eat from the tree that God forbade them to eat from. And Eve's response is exactly as it should be. She says, this is what God said. Don't eat it or touch it or you'll surely die. And it's the serpent who says, no, no, that you won't die. Is that really what God said? That's not going to happen. Go ahead and just take a bite. And then they eat it and we don't see them die. <laughs> And it's, it's right here where we begin to get these, these categories of a different kind of life than just the, the physical, material life here. And a different kind of death than the physical, material death here and now. The Bible seems to have in mind a different kind of life. <laughs> a different kind of death. A death that, that Adam really did experience the very moment that he broke God's command, a death that Paul now picks up on in Romans 5, and a death that we would call not, not merely physical, but a spiritual death, and an eternal death, cut off from the intimate relationship with God that they had in the garden. When we, when we keep reading the story in Genesis 3, um, what we see play out is something far deeper and far more comprehensive and far more damning than, it, than if they had just ceased to exist in that moment. The main feature of those events that we see play out following Adam's sin is God's, it's his separation of himself from them and everything that came with it. You'll remember that in the garden before the fall, uh, it said that Adam and Eve, they were, they were rested in the garden. That's the word uh, used there in Genesis 2.15. God, he, he put or he placed or he literally rested them there, And so they enjoy this, this perfect rest and communion with God in the garden where you'll remember that there was more than just one tree. There was more than just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat. There was also the tree of, of what? Do you remember? The tree of life, which was in the middle of the garden from which Adam and Eve, they, they were allowed to eat from because God said that it was good for them. And so they enjoyed perfect communion with God and his presence. They had perfect rest in the garden and they had access to this, this tree of life from which they could eat and be satisfied, resting and trusting in God's good and perfect plan and design for them. And the consequence of their sin was that they were cut off from all of it. And do not miss the significance of those things in the story because again, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, it's, it's a narrative and it doesn't say things the same way Paul does in Romans or in his other epistles because it's, it's a different genre. But it doesn't mean that it's any less clear or powerful. Friends, it was death to them. When we 
connect the dots of the narrative of the story being told, Adam and Eve did die the day that they broke God's one and only command to them because they were cut off from communion with him. They were cut off from the rest that they had in the garden that God made to be good for them and the tree of life that sustained them in that garden. Let's keep, let's keep connecting the dots. The last scene in Genesis 3, before it kind of skips ahead to uh, Cain and Abel, it's in verses 20 through 24. And this is after Adam and Eve's sin. And let me just read two verses there quickly that, that I think give us some insight into this, this life and death that Genesis is talking about here early on. Verse 22, the Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So we see there, after they sin, it's eternal life that God is concerned about them having after their sin. And it says, so the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out of the land, stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see the concern with the tree of life here? Both on the, on the front side of the fall, it's, it's massively significant for humanity's life in the garden. And now on this side of the fall, from which God promised they would die if they crossed that line, now an integral part of what we see play out is they're cut off and they're banned from accessing the tree of life and the eternal life that it provides. This probably becomes a little more clear or filled in in terms of uh, eternity when we think about eternal life on this side of salvation being uh, p- perfect presence with God. It means uh, the fulfillment of that future rest that God has promised for his people. And uh, we won't go down this rabbit trail, but while there were, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden, there's only going to be one tree in the new earth. And it's not the forbidden one. <laughs> it's the tree of life. You remember that. God is going to bring his people into a a perfect rest, into perfect fellowship with him again, in a place where they once again have access to the tree of life. Meanwhile, all those who are not in Christ, they're going to experience an eternal torment and judgment, separated from the presence of God at enmity with him forever. And so the life that's available to humanity in the garden that Christ restores to us, it's not just the life that we know in the here and now. Amen? It's certainly not less than that, but it's also much, much more than that. It's also an eternal one, one spent in perfect communion with him forever. That's what they lost when they sinned. And this life we live here now, it's only, it's only a tainted image of the perfect life that God originally designed for us that he restores to us in Christ. And the death that God was speaking about in the garden that came down upon Adam and Eve was the exact opposite of that. Yes, it includes uh, physical death in this life, from the dust you came and to the dust you will return. But it was also eternal. And it had to do with the spiritual state of their souls now being cut off from him and unable to get that relationship back. And that's what the entire rest of the Bible is about, is how God is going to restore that relationship and reconcile himself to humanity. That only begins to 
scratch the surface of our text this morning, because we, as, we've, as we've already alluded to this morning, the question and uh, the sentiment, really, that looms over this whole conversation is this, what does that have anything to do with me? <laughs> That's the tension of the text this morning. What does this have anything to do with me? Um, I grew up in a house with four boys, myself included, um, and my little sister was the youngest, so I was the oldest of five. And uh, I, can't, I can't say as I look back that among us kids in my household, there was a lot of uh, acceptance of blame going on amongst us to my parents. One specific sequence, for example, might go like this. Me and my brother, um, less than two years apart, my closest brother, out playing uh, basketball in the driveway. And, um, you know, we wouldn't play games like seven or ten. We'd play games to... Uh, 100, because uh, that was legit. NBA games went to 100, and so, um, you know, we want to be a real players. We're playing to 100, so we did. Um, the problem with a game that long was that it severely heightened the chance for that game to end prematurely in some kind of fight, uh, you know, over a foul call or just our competitive swelling, us, swelling up and, and uh, one of us getting mad, um, usually my brother because I was beating him so bad, but... Um, and this probably, it probably, maybe, I don't know, it's hard to say for sure, probably included some kind of comment from me, because um, I, I don't know if you guys know, the thing about me, I have, I have this spiritual gift from the Lord, really, uh, that he has graciously bestowed upon me that knows exactly what button to push to my brother to get him upset, and uh, it, it, it's a beautiful thing, honestly. And so, um, you know, tempers are flaring, the tension's rising, right? playing this game, and, and I know that it didn't always happen like this, but for some reason this is just like the way the memory is seared in my mind when I think about this. Um, the picture that I have once things like start to go down uh, is me starting to walk into the house because my brother's upset, he's losing it, and then him, him throwing a basketball at me, trying to hit me, uh, hit me through the garage, and it kind of slamming off the garage wall. Um, and and this, would, this would happen just as I was closing the door walking into the kitchen uh, where my mom is there getting dinner ready. She would, of course, hear what's happening on the other side of the door, and her question was always the same. What's going on out there? My answer was always the same. I don't know. <laughs> my brother would walk in all mad, crying. He, he, uh, he, he wants a piece of me, right? And so my mom's attention towards me it gets a little more um, pointed, we could say. She starts questioning me about why my brother's acting like this, you know. Why is, my, why is your brother crying? And I'm like, I don't know why he's crying. He, he's a baby. He's just crying. I don't know. You, you want my take? He's just soft. That's his problem. He's soft. You want my opinion? He can't take this butt whooping I'm giving him. Uh, I, I don't know what you want me. You want me to take it easy on him? We can do that, I guess, if that's how, if that's how you want this to go. Uh, but really, my statement was, his behavior is, go talk to him about it. It's not my problem. I'm here to tell all of you this morning, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Now, sometimes that response was out of willful rebellion, right? I wasn't going to admit to anything, even, even if I knew that, that I had done it. I wasn't going to admit it. Sometimes that response was in genuine ignorance, I really did not understand how my actions had gotten my brother so angry. I felt, I felt justified because I felt like he kind of overreacted, and I, I, I couldn't see how I might have contributed to that. 
But here's the point to make. In both of those responses, I was wrong because my heart was not in the right place for me to see it. Some of you are, even though we, we've barely scratched the surface this morning, are in the exact same condition in your heart right now about this passage. And if you're not already, you might be soon. Because <laughs> as we start talking about the death that Adam, Adam ushers in through his sin and how the Bible says we're implicated in that, that it spreads to us somehow, the most common and natural reaction that we all have in our hearts is this, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. You can't blame me for that. It wasn't me. That's Adam's problem. It ain't my problem. Go talk to him about it. The impulse that self-justification and desire for what we think is fair, it's, it's very real, and it's very strong in all of us. And the Bible's going to answer that very objection for us this morning. But, but I just want to caution us before we kind of dive into this. We're going to tread into some pretty deep theological waters We've got to let the Bible correct our thinking and give us the right categories for thinking about ourselves and the world we live in, even if it feels completely different and foreign to us. Amen? It's okay. And most importantly, we have to approach this with the right heart, a heart that's willing to be corrected and that's willing to submit to what the Bible says, even if everything we feel disagrees with it. Are you with me this morning? So these are the questions before us now. How does death spread to all men through the sin of Adam? And how can Paul say all sinned through that one sinful act? Let me just take a drink before we get into this this morning. I hope you all are warmed up this morning, man. We're going to flex our theological muscles this morning. Second point we want to make from the text, if we could just state it before we dive in is that all of humanity is dead in Adam because all of humanity sinned in Adam. All of humanity is dead in Adam because all of humanity sinned in Adam. The rest of verse 12 reads like this. It says, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. What we've said already explains fine and well why why death spread uh, through sin to Adam and to Eve, but it doesn't explain how it affects me and you and the rest of humanity. Remember, the framework for understanding the answer to both of these questions, it's not first our relationship to Adam, it's first for the believer our relationship to Christ. Christ is not a character in the story of Adam. <laughs> Adam is a character in the story about Christ. As one theologian put it, Adam stands in the light of Christ. Christ is the center and theme of the whole argument, and Adam only stands for the darkness into which this light has dawned. Another theologian put it this way, Paul does not go to Adam to see how he is connected with Christ. He goes to Christ to see how he is connected with Adam. And they're exactly right. That's the logic of the text and the theology of the Bible. It's gonna, how, we're gonna, how we're going to attempt to answer these questions and so the first thing we want to say is that the death, the way that death spreads through sin is analogous to the way that life spreads through justification. The way that death spreads through sin is analogous to the way that life spreads through justification. 
As Paul um, moves into this argument, really, that uh, goes all the way down to verse 21, tw- verses 12 to 21 here, there, there are these uh, two cause and effect relationships that mirror one another, and we're, we're implicated in both of them. And as we've already alluded to, one of them helps explain the other. The two relationships that we're seeing develop are this. One, there is, there is condemnation and death that come through sin in Adam, and there is life through justification that comes in Christ. Paul brings both up in relationship to one another uh, numerous times in these, in these few verses, but the place where I think we see that most clearly stated is in verses 18 and 19. Um, he says there, So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so there's, there's sin that leads to condemnation and death, and there's righteousness that leads to life. And both of them, hear me now, because this is, this is the heart of the argument, both of them come through the one act by the one man. This is kind of the, the overarching framework that this passage in 12 to 21 is operating under. And so in order to answer these questions about uh, death spreading through sin and all sinning in Adam, we have to lean on our understanding of how life spreads through justification in Christ. And luckily enough, Paul has done, he's already done a lot of work uh, in explaining these ideas to us in Romans. We've talked about how Christ offers a, a new life through justification by faith and how that justification deals with us being counted as righteous. The, the kind of more technical term we'd lean on there would be um, in, imputed righteousness. In our faith, we've been, we've been imputed the righteousness of Christ onto us so that when God looks down on us, he no longer sees us in our wickedness and sin. Rather, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This righteousness, it's not, it's not ours in the sense that we really have to develop or manifest it. It's not something that we perform. It, it's, it's alien to us. And we receive all of that as if it were ours when we're united to him in faith. It's part of what the Bible means when it talks about you being in Christ. <laughs> That's the overwhelming identity of the believer is someone who is now in Christ. They're now in union with him. Friends, that's really the essence of your salvation. It's your union with Christ. It's, it's the, the fountainhead by which every other aspect and benefit of salvation flows out of is the fact that you're now united to him. And the reason that that's so important to understand is that when we come to the life in Adam with that framework in mind, we'll see how the way that death spreads through sin works very much the same way. In the same way that there is this, uh, there's this forensic imputation of righteousness on us when we're united to Christ in faith, there was first a forensic imputation of sin and guilt upon all of humanity when Adam sinned because all of humanity was in Adam. In the same way that we've been united to Christ by faith, we were first in union with Adam in the fall, and in the same way that we receive the benefits of salvation in union with Christ we first receive the consequences of sin in our union with Adam. 
First Corinthians is helpful here. I think it uses very similar uh, language and concepts, and I think um, helps bring this specific idea out a little stronger. Uh, in First Corinthians fifteen twenty one to twenty two, Paul says this. He says, "For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam." all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There is a, a real, organic, mysterious union that all of humanity shares in Adam. And the effects, or in this case the consequences of the one act by the one man Adam are bestowed upon all of us by virtue of that union in the same way that there is a real, organic, mysterious union between all of those who have faith in Christ and Christ himself, by which all of the benefits of salvation are bestowed upon us, and we get to inherit all the benefits of his relationship with the Father as if they were our own. The most prevalent illustration or or metaphor for explaining what this union is and how it works, uh, it's the marriage union between a husband and a wife. That's the best way to explain this. In marriage, there's this this declarative act, right? When a man and a woman, they get married, they're they're no longer considered two separate people, but they're now one. They still have their own mind and their own will and their own physical bodies, but they, they belong to each other and they function as one. The two have become one flesh. What's mine becomes hers and what's hers becomes mine. That's how it's supposed to work at least. Now, I'll, I'll grant it to you. This doesn't always work itself out perfectly. Um, me, for example, this is just my story. I don't know, I don't know your story. Um, I, didn't, I didn't inherit a single article of clothing when I got married to my wife. My wife, on the other hand, she seemed to uh, inherit an entire new additional wardrobe for herself. Drawer full of of t-shirts and a, a closet full of sweatshirts. All hers now, overnight. And this is a beautiful thing about marriage, that this, this takes place, right? For her. But there's no imperfection in the metaphor when it comes to our union with Christ, friends. When we're, when we're married to Christ, we receive everything that's his as if it were his own, our own. And when he hung on the cross paying for our sin, it was because he inherited everything that was ours as if it was his own. When he took it to the cross with him and he paid it like it was his. And this is the scandal of the gospel that caused Martin Luther to say this. He said, who can fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of the glory of this grace, here this rich and divine bridegroom, Christ, marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all of his goodness. Her sins now cannot destroy her, since they're laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast in as as her own, and of which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell, and say, Even if I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned. And all that's his is mine, and all that is mine is his. Just as the bride in the Song of Solomon says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. 
believer, when, when, you're, when you're married to Christ, you receive all that's his as if it were your own. That's what your union with Christ means. You've been married to Christ in faith. But, but hang with me here because the point of all, is it, all of this is that your sin and your guilt and your condemnation, they work the same way in Adam. In the same way that you, you've now been united to Christ and you receive the benefits of salvation in him, you first receive the consequences of sin in Adam because you were first united to him in the same way. And so here's the answer to our question. The reason death and condemnation spread to all men in the sin of Adam is that all of humanity was united to Adam when he sinned. The answer to the objection, I didn't do it, is yes, we all did. We all sinned because we were all united to Adam when he sinned. And one of the repercussions of that reality, it's this the legal declaration of guilt that we all received because we were all united to Adam in his sin. This is the legal aspect of it. It's the idea that Adam, uh, he acted as our, our, our head, our federal head in the garden, and in that sense, he represents all of us. Again, in the same way, Christ now acts as our federal head on the cross, and he represents a new humanity that he ushers in through the new covenant. But before all of that, we are all in Adam because he was the first head of all humanity. And as the head of all humanity, what he does affects all of us. We can summarize it like this, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from a man named Marcus Johnson. I think this is a very helpful summary, uh, succinct and clear. He said, God imputes the sin of Adam to us in very much the same way that he imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. He regards it as ours because we really share in it. Just as there is a real union with Christ that includes a, a forensic, or we could say legal, aspect, that's justification, so there is a real union with Adam that includes a forensic, or we could say again, legal, aspect, that's condemnation. Now, this means exactly what you think it means. We are not just subjects of wrath and condemnation apart from Christ because we all sin individually. We are not first guilty because of our own individual sin. We are first guilty because we were imputed the guilt of the first man, Adam, because we were in him when he sinned, and because we were in him, we received it as if it was ours. Now again, I hear the objections. I hear them. I know what some of you are thinking and feeling, because quite honestly, it's what I've been thinking and feeling the whole time, thinking about this. How could God look at me and count this towards me when I didn't really do it? <laughs> How could he condemn me on the grounds of something I didn't do? And as those feelings flare up in your heart, please understand this, that people who disagree with us on justification as declared righteousness, right, as imputed 
righteousness, as a free gift of grace, they have the same exact objection on the other side. How can God declare righteous someone or something that is not really righteous? How can he look at you and look at me filthy in our sin and just declare them righteous? Just say it. How is that not just legal fiction, they'll call it? In other words, you can, you can declare it and say it all you want, God, but that doesn't make it true. That's what, that's what they say. And why do they say it? Because that righteousness that you're said to possess, you didn't do it. <laughs> you see that. See, at, at, the, at the root of it, we think what we want is fairness. Our objection to God is the way that this works, if this, is, if this is really true, it's not fair to us. Friends, we don't want fair. And if that's you this morning, quite honestly, if that's going to be the posture of your heart this morning in this, you can, you, quite honestly, you can have what you might think is fair when it comes to these ideas of sin and guilt and condemnation before God. But understand that if you, if you take that for yourself, if you want to try to deny the effects of your union with Adam because you don't want to accept what he offers you because you didn't do it, you don't get Jesus or what he offers either. Because the two work the same way. But even here, there's still more to say because just as our union with Christ has not only these legal uh, aspects, it also has transformative effects. So did our union with Adam. Um, some of you might remember uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, you know what I'm talking about. Um, one of the major plot lines of the, of, of the, the movie uh, were these pirates who were cursed, right? Um, and and their, their curse was essentially that they they, they lived life as if they were dead, <laughs> and it never ended. They walked around during the day, and they, uh, they looked like everyone else, flesh, hair, all these things, uh, but at night, their, their flesh would just disappear, and they would just be these skeletons walking around. Uh, they'd walk on the floor of the sea because it couldn't kill them any more than they were already dead. At one point, the captain, he talks about how they they eat, but nothing satisfies their hunger. They take a drink of water, but nothing can quench their thirst. And the way that this all happened and came about was through one single act of, of taking gold out of the chest that results now in this ongoing punishment of a changed nature that they have to live with until that curse is somehow reversed or broken. Now, I... I I know the illustration breaks down quickly, but, but the point is that the forbidden act that they committed, uh, it, it didn't just result in a guilt or a debt on their account that they had to somehow pay back. It resulted in a, in a complete transformation of who and what they were. They essentially now have to live all of life as dead men. Men who can't be satisfied by anything this life has to offer. Who, whose torment, it, it can't end. Maybe not a perfect picture of this life for uh, the unbeliever, but certainly a picture of the life to come. They want nothing more than to just 
cease to exist so that it will all end, but it never does. We've talked about how our union with Christ, it results in, in, our, in our declaration of righteousness that we receive. But it's also the underlying cause of our transformation into something much different that does manifest itself out in this life in real space, time, and history. And here and now, we're, we're made into a new creation. We have a new humanity that, we, that we, we put on. We have a new nature. We get a new heart. And while excuse me, imperfectly now, uh, that's the transformation that takes place in us where we begin to now have new, new affections, new thoughts, new, new actions. All of this happens because we, we now are something completely different. Are you following me? And the union with Adam, it acted the same way here as well. It caused us, yes, to be uh, imputed with the guilt and the condemnation of sin, but it also had transformative effects on us for the worst. This is another aspect of the way that, that death spreads to all men through the sin of Adam. We, we inherited the corrupted nature of Adam because we were really in him when he sinned. And that sin, it polluted us in our nature the same way it polluted him in his nature and, and all those who have come after him. All of humanity now walks around living all of life as dead men. We could think of this similarly to the realities of justification and sanctification uh, in Christ. In Christ, we are both justified, right? Declared righteous, imputed the righteousness of Christ because we are now in him, and we're sanctified. We're, we're made holy, and we now get to walk in that in our lives, in the same way, in Adam, we are both condemned, we're imputed the guilt of sin because we were in Adam, and also our nature is polluted. <laughs> we are made sinners. And naturally, apart from Christ, this is, this is all we have to walk in, is our, our corruption and our sin. So, so in the same way that our justification and our sanctification, they're, they're, they're two separate, but they're two inseparable realities of our union with Christ— so are our condemnation and our polluted nature, two separate but inseparable consequences of our union with Adam. Uh, this aspect of the, the transformative effects of Adam's sin that all of humanity is subject to in Adam, it also speaks to this statement in verses 13 to 14. Paul writes, in fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. What's the significance of this time period between Adam and Moses? Well, it's the, it's the first man, Adam, and it's the giving of the law by Moses. Um, most of the conversation in Romans up to this point is, uh, that, that Paul's been dealing with, he's been talking about humanity's problem mostly in relationship to the law, Right? Uh, they're all unable to keep it, Jew and Gentile alike. Nobody meets its standards. They're all in violation of it. And that kind of speaks more again to this, uh, this more legal aspect of guilt and the storing up of debt that needs to be paid. Um, there's sin that is, that is uh, gained on our account with God that needs paid, and, and Christ, Christ paid for it. He paid for it for us. That was the shedding of his blood. Uh, but Paul's point here is that 
the problem humanity have, it runs, it runs even deeper than that. <laughs> because before the law was even given to them, death and sin had still been reigning all of that time. Genesis 4, death reigned supreme. <laughs> Genesis 5, he lived and he died and he died and he died and he died over and over and over and over again. And then the flood, and uh, the flood narrative is right after that. It's, it's, it's hammering home the same point that Paul's making. Death now reigns over this life that Adam ushered in with his sin. Before the law even came, the power of sin and death, it, has, it had dominion over humanity. And, and, and this, this, this reality that there's something innately wrong with who and what we are outside of Christ and the world we live in, and the very powers that we're enslaved to, it's the heart of the reconciliation that Paul's just been talking about. It's the reason that apart from Christ, there can be no peace with God, but, but Christ brings peace, and he brings reconciliation. That's 5, 1, and 11. It's the reconciliation Christ offers us because he does not just pay our debt. He makes us into something completely different. He gives us a new heart. We now get to participate in a new nature. He ushers in a new, a new humanity and a new domain. This is what we mean by a new creation. So that we can once again participate in a life that is not ruled over by sin and death, but by righteousness in the presence of God. Are you following me? Christ doesn't just pay your debt so that you can live the same life debt-free. He gives you an entirely different, new kind of life to live. And this is what it means for Paul to say of Adam, he is just the prototype of the coming one. This is our third and final point this morning. As monumental as Adam is, and his one act of sin was for all of humanity, he's only the type. <laughs> he's only the type. This passage in Romans 5 from verses 12 to 21, which we're really just introducing, uh, it's part of a specific movement that Paul is starting to unpack here. Uh, in Romans 5, he, he starts talking about this life in Adam where not only are we imputed with this guilt, we're transformed by his sin because we were in him when he sinned. It's also fundamentally an exposition and an explanation of the world that Adam now ushers in. We've been talking about this all morning. Adam, Adam literally changed the world. <laughs> it's no longer the perfect world that God designed. It's a life that humanity now lives in that is now reigned by sin and death. And the reconciliation that Christ offers as the answer to the problem, it's all of the above. It's imputed righteousness when we were imputed guilt. It's transformative effects by which we are made holy when we were made sinners in Adam. And it's rescuing us from the domain of sin and death and giving us a new life in the domain of life and righteousness. And when Romans 6 comes along, Paul's going he's gonna, to he's gonna answer the very legitimate natural question, um, which is, if all of this is true, if we're justified by faith, if grace abounds in our sin, why should we not just continue in sin? <laughs> we're not going to skip there, but essentially his answer is this. He says, 
you absolutely should not continue in sin because that's not who you are anymore. It's not the world that you belong to. Don't let sin reign in your body because you're now ruled by grace and righteousness in Christ. And then when we get to Romans 7, Paul begins to unpack the very real, uh, sometimes confusing, hard to understand, but again, very real, already not yet reality of those two different domains, we could say. It's the simultaneous reality that life in Christ is, is real and it's available to us and we've really been made into a new creation by our faith in Christ. That's true of us right now. It's true. It's an objective reality about us but that we don't get to experience the perfect fruition of this reality until we're caught up with Christ in heaven. Because for now, while, while all of those things are really true for us, the, the old self, he's always kind of just lingering there, trying to draw us back into the life in Adam and entice us back to the world of sin and death and what that looks like. And there's this constant kind of tug and pull in both directions that at some level we have to deal with until we're glorified or until we die and go to heaven. And here's the reason I bring this up now. One, to understand why, uh, why all of this matters <laughs> and, and how it fits in with Paul's larger argument where he's going. But two, it's so that we'd be able to understand our lives and, and think about everything that happens in the terms and in the framework that the Bible presents. We get, we get so bogged down in the day-to-day, -day, the, the tiny little details of life. We have, we have such small minds when we think about the world and why it works the way it works. And, and, and for now, what I want us to walk away understanding and think about is just kind of zooming out and seeing all of life from this big, broad lens and understanding that everything that is not as it should be right now, it's life in Adam. It's the life that Adam ushered in that is reigned over by sin and death. And friends, everything that is being restored right now imperfectly and everything that will be restored one day perfectly, it's life in Christ. It's the new humanity. It's the new life, the new domain that he ushers in as the second Adam, the last Adam that's reigned over by grace and righteousness. Are you with me on this? <laughs> this is so important because, friends, all of life has to be viewed and interpreted within this framework because that's how the Bible talks about it. Everything that is wrong, everything that's wrong, it's life in Adam. Friends, yes, there are, there are consequences for your, your own individual sin. That's 100% true. But understand that the, the biggest problem you have outside of Christ is not anything specific that you've done or anything that's happened to you. It's that you and everyone around you are just a tainted image of what you were created to be and we're living in the wrong world. It means that when you're struggling with sin, <laughs> understand you are struggling with life in Adam with the old man that belongs to sin and death. And understand, while it might be a, a, a real struggle, a genuine struggle in this life now, you don't have to belong to it. Because Jesus Christ came as the last Adam and he ushered in a life that is reigned by grace and righteousness. 
It means when you're walking through a hard season in life, your biggest pain is not your present circumstances. It's that you're living in the wrong world. A world that is enslaved to sin and death. In Adam, it means when you're, when you're upset about someone's mistreatment of you. <laughs> and your mind, as much as you want to forget it, keeps going back to that one moment or that, that one thing they said or that one thing uh, they didn't say. Whatever it is, friends, understand there is something much, much, much deeper going on than just the words they said and the emotions that you're feeling about it. It's the old life and the old man that belongs, literally belongs, is married to, is loyal to, doesn't know anything other than sin and death. Loved ones lost, relationships broken, family members deteriorating before our eyes, lost job, sickness, all of it. Life in Adam. Wrong world. We view everything in life so individualistically and we have to be able to step outside of ourselves and, and see the reality that what we need is not just a change in circumstances or a change in behavior. We need an entire new existence. And the Bible presents the same answer for all of those problems and it's life in Christ. It's the new life that Christ offers all of us, whereby all we have to do is put our faith and our trust in him, and we inherit this eternal life with him. We become married to Christ, and everything that's his becomes ours, as if it were our own. Perfect peace. Perfect obedience. Perfect communion with the Father. No more sin, no more pain. Every, every tear wiped from our eyes. It's a new humanity and a new existence that is reigned over, not by sin and death, but by grace and righteousness that you really can have and participate in. He has made all things new. He gives you an entire new life that will last forever. Worship team, you can come up. Friends, if you're living this same life that I am, and you're realizing that nothing in this life does it for you, nothing satisfies you, that this life feels like it, it just beats you down and kind of tosses you to and fro. Hear me now. <laughs> it's because you were made for a different kind of life. You weren't made for this life of sin and death. You were made for a life of all those things. Perfect peace, perfect obedience, you were made for a life with God. And I just don't know if we understand that that's available to each and every one of us this morning, moment by moment, but only in Christ. <laughs> All you have to do to inherit it is to just believe and to trust in him, to become one with him.
and you'll inherit everything that's his as if it were your own. And we're going to live that reality in tension now. But one day, one day, all we will know is the reality that all things have been made new. And for now, we just keep believing and keep trusting and keep pressing on towards that day of new life with God. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, God. We thank you that it's true and it's powerful, God. We thank you for the way that you, uh, you renew us through it, God, that you, you, you legitimately change us. God, we confess that that's what we need. We don't just need help. We need a new life. And we thank you that it's available to us, Lord. Help us to believe you. Help us to trust you. Help us to see the world the way the Bible sees it. Help us to walk away from here as changed men. We pray all